Welcome back, friends. This is Ill-Natured, a true crime podcast, and I'm your host, Alyssa. Today, I'm going to be doing a case all by myself, Um, so this is a little awkward. I'm sorry, you guys. I'm used to having someone to at least talk to, Um, so now I'm just talking to myself, and it's kind of weird, but we're fine. We're going to keep rolling through this um, because I promised y'all consistency, and I broke that promise last week. I'm apologizing already, Um, but here we are trying to get back on trying to get me back on schedule, I suppose. Um, I was going to get McKay, my husband, to record this with me because Shell has had some things going on. One of her sons was baptized on Sunday, so we were very, very um, happy and proud of him. And she's been, you know, spending time with her family and... Of course, full-time jobs. You know, we've already given you that rundown last week. So, or last time we talked. But I'm going to do a case today that I said I was going to get my husband on. But I didn't think he could handle it. We started it last night. And we didn't even get through the first paragraph. Because his first his first way of coping is like humor. <coughs> And I was like, I can't handle this one today with you. So as much as I love you, we're going to sit out and we're just going to do a solo episode. Um, But y'all are in for a pretty rough case today. This involves a ton of graphic, horrific stuff. Um, And I wanted to give a trigger warning. This case involves pedophilia, vampirism, necrophilia. Um, So... If that's something you're not into, something you do not want to listen to, feel free to skip this episode and come back um, next week. Today, we are going to be discussing a Japanese, Japanese, excuse me, serial killer named Sutomu Miyazaki, who was only active for roughly a year, but committed the most horrific crime you can possibly think of excuse me my voice he was dubbed the otaku murderer and had four victims ranging from august 1988 to june of 1989 so like i said um like not like 11 months um before he was apprehended now let's get into the murderer and of course we need to start from the sanded Sanded. And we have to start from when Satan planted his seed. Now, everyone has heard or seen something that has been associated with anime, whether you know it or not. Shows such as Naruto, Dragon Ball, Pokemon, and other shows like that um, are anime. And people in Japan that are obsessed with anime are called otaku. And so our case today kind of focuses on... um, Someone who was, you know, whose obsession turned him into a monster of the most 
disgusting kind. And of course we're going to talk about this a little bit later on, but just because um, someone's into anime does not make them a serial killer. So, I mean, I've watched Dragon Ball and Naruto. So, <clears throat> I mean, I wasn't a dedicated watcher, but I have watched episodes, more episodes of Dragon Ball. But, um, that doesn't make me a serial killer, and it's not making anyone else one. So, I just wanted to put that out there before we start this episode. Satumu, Satu, and I'm also going to butcher his name probably every time I say it. So, I'm probably going to just stick to Miyazaki. Um, and, yeah, I apologize about that. Uh, but he was born on August 21st, 1962 in Itsukichi, 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 Japan, into a wealthy family. His father, Katsumi Miyazaki, was the owner of Akigawa Shimbun, a local newspaper company. <clears throat> now, when Miyazaki was born, he was born prematurely and with a rare birth defect known as congenital radial ulnar fusion disease, a rare condition in which the forearm bones are fused together at the elbow, preventing the child from rotating their palm up or down. Now, if you look online, one of the first things you're going to find when you um, Google Miyazaki's name is a black and white photo of a hand. Now, it's a deformed hand, and the hand has, like, really long, it's like a really long palm and really long fingers. And many people believe this is Miyazaki's hand, but that is false. That's not what he looked like. Um... There is actually a photo, um, this is actually a photo from a medical textbook on a different um, condition called Marfan Syndrome. His hands weren't very um, noticeably physically deformed, but he did say he had limitations. Um, and you can see that in pictures later on when he is like walking into the courthouse or things like that, his hands look completely normal. But he does say he had limitations, and we'll get into it in a minute, that he was bullied for some of those limitations. His parents were both extremely busy, so Miyazaki was raised by his grandfather, Shokichi, whom he was extremely close to. Now, like I just said, when he started school, he was almost immediately bullied because of the deformity, and that made him retreat into himself and become more isolated which is not good because he was only around his grandfather and then when he started school, it's just even going worse and worse. So, more into his show. Now, it's believed by this time Miyazaki started reading comics and he started getting into anime. Dr. Susumu Oda, a psychologist that studied Satomu Miyazaki, said this, quote, As a boy, he made no close friends and therefore gained no information about sex in the real world. Instead, he turned to videos, comics, and pornography for his thrills. End quote. Now, this is kind of where we start going, like, really downhill. Not just, like, weird, not just, you know, isolated, but, like, really going down the dark alley. Now, when Miyazaki found porn, he started to obsess over it. And not just, like watch it all the time but like really was really freaking out over it and one thing to note about Japanese porn 
is that it censors everything due to laws in the country. Soon, he grew tired of adult porn because, quote, now this is what he said, they black out the most important part, end quote. Now, I would like to say that I have done um, enough research for one person about Japanese porn, and it wasn't much. So, um, yeah, I didn't realize that, but Japan censors pubic hair, I believe. Um, So, adults would not have pubic hair. I mean, adults would have pubic hair, so their genitals would be blacked out. On the other hand, children would not be blocked out because they did not have pubic hair. So, by 1984, Satomu Maizaki was into children porn. And this is kind of where his pedophilia really starts and really ramps up. And I just, I don't really like it, guys. I hate it. The mid-1980s, Miyazaki moved back in with his family and shared a room with his older sister. When his father was getting ready to retire, Miyazaki was expected to take over the business, but he had zero interest in doing that. Around this time in his life, he contemplated suicide and felt only his grandfather truly supported him. He felt rejected by his two younger sisters, who he really never got along with. They actually found him repulsive, Um, which is not too far-fetched, in my opinion. By 1988, things were really about to go from zero to a hundred, because in May, Shokichi, the grandfather, passed away, um, and this deeply upset Satomu. Like I said, this is the only person that understood him, or he felt like understood him, and who was kind to him. So, he was left feeling alone. And this is when the absolute worst thing could happen, um, and he let his deepest, darkest desires take over. Now, this case seems so textbook when you look at it like this. I mean, he's already screwed up individual and, of course, would have done something terrible eventually, but every crime show you watch, the purpose done something that sparks their first murder. Whether it be rejection, divorce, death, something flips their switch and turns their life upside down, and this was that event to Miyazaki. I believe his grandfather's death was the last bridge burning that connected Miyazaki to society. Like, that bridge is burned, Miyazaki's on one side of society, and everyone else is on the normal side. After Shokichi passed, they had him cremated. Now, Miyazaki claims to have eaten some of his grandfather's ashes, Um, And source material really differs on why, but some say to retain a part of him or remain close to him. And others say it's to reincarnate his grandfather. But either way, there was an immediate change in him and his family began noticing it just as quickly. A few weeks after his grandfather's death, Maizaki was caught spying on his sister while she was showering. And of course, she freaked out on him and told him to get out. And then he began to attack her. And when her mother found out about this, she 
started to scold him, get on to him, of course, like, why are you attacking your sister? And he starts attacking her as well. Now, I don't know how serious the attacks were, but he was clearly becoming more outwardly violent. Um, And this was only the beginning because three months later, Miyazaki would claim his first victim. On August 22nd, 1988, a day after his 26th birthday, Satomu Miyazaki abducted a four-year-old little girl named Mary Kono. Now, Mary left her home approximately three in the afternoon to go play with a friend. Now, details are a little sparse, but Miyazaki walked up to Mary, led her back to his car, promising her a nice walk or something. And then when they got to the outskirts of Tokyo, he parked the car under a bridge in a wooded area where they sat together side by side for about 30 minutes while doing nothing. And then all of a sudden, he just turned to her and began strangling her until she stopped moving. Once he knew that she was dead, he stripped her clothes, raped her body, and disposed of the body in the hills. Then he takes her clothes and he leaves. Now, very similarly to Jeffrey Dahmer, Miyazaki took photos during the entire abduction and murder process, um, which is disturbing. And after her body had decomposed, he returned to the body to dismember her by cutting off her hands and feet um, to keep them for himself and disposing of the rest of her. Now, of course, around 6 p.m., the day she went missing, Mary's parents started to worry because, I mean, she's four years old. So, why is their four-year-old not home? And they alerted, you know, the police immediately who started to search without any questions. But, unfortunately, even with this quick, you know, act, um, there was no trace of her anywhere and they didn't have anything to go on. Several days after she disappeared, Mary's family received a postcard in the mail that said, quote, there are devils about End quote. And it's also reported that he called the family breathing heavily into the phone, and if they didn't answer, he would call until they would. Over the course of the investigation, the police spent 2,900 man days interviewing people around Mary's home and sent out 50,000 posters with her picture to the police, train stations, subway, bus stations, you know, all these stations across the nation. Now, it's a quick side note, but I could be completely wrong. Um, but a man days in regards to the amount of work one person can do in amount of time. So, according to my calculations, it would take one man a little over a year to do the hours of interviewing the police did. Um, so, if it was just one person, it would take them over a year to do all the interviewing and talking to the police. The people that the police talked to. And during those interviews, they spoke with two boys who said they saw Mary walking with a man and a 38-year-old woman who said she saw Mary with a, with the same man. Now, the description that was given was late 30s, about 5'5 five, five to 5'6, five, and a round face with curly hair. He was said to be wearing white slacks and a white summer sweater. And even with this description, police had nothing to go on, and the investigation slowed down. Mary's school began without her, and her parents led their children um, every day after that until her killer was off the streets. On October 3rd of 1988, Miyazaki would abduct his second victim. He was driving alone on a rural road when he saw Masami Yo's 
Yoshizawa, a seven-year-old girl. She was walking alone when he drove up beside her and offered her a ride, and she, of course, accepted, unknowing her fate. Maizaki took her to the exact same place he had taken Mary and strangled Masami as well. He proceeded to brutally assault her corpse, and during this, her body kind of involuntarily shuddered. I believe he might have thought she was still alive, but I think... I mean, you know, it's just a, a bodily reaction to death afterwards is what I think. Um, but it scared him away. So he takes her car or takes her clothes and runs back to his car. He left her about 300 feet from where Mary's remains were left at. So two of his victims are very close together. Now, Masami's parents also reported her missing that day and a search party was started immediately. But like Mary, Nothing was left to trace Masami's whereabouts, and she was just another missing little girl. Now, this is when the media dubbed the otaku murderer um, and called crimes the little girl murders. This is referring to the two little girls we've talked about so far. Now, December 12th of 1988, the third little girl would go missing at the hands of Satomu. Erica Namba, four years old, was walking home alongside the road when she was leaving a friend's house. He forced the little girl into his car and took her to a parking lot. He forced her to take her clothes off in the back seat while he took pictures of her while she was scared to death. A car drove by and the headlights briefly lit up his face and Erica began to cry. Now that's when Satomu put his hand around her while he was straddling her and she took her last breaths. So I think this kind of panicked him. Like she's screaming... Like, they're not just hidden away in the woods. They're in a parking lot. Someone seems to pull up. Headlights are on his face. So, now we have, like, someone can recognize him. And she's screaming. So, I think he's panicking and does, maybe finishes prematurely of what he planned on doing and strangles her. He then wraps her body in a sheet and puts it in his trunk. He actually gets rid of her clothes somewhere behind the parking lot and drives off. Now, we really don't know exactly why what happens ne- next happens, but Maizaki runs off the road while he's turning a corner and the front wheel slipped into a gutter of some sort. Now, I'm wondering if he was just, you know, like I said, a little st- kind of stressed out, a little, you know, dazed and confused possibly, and he's like driving like a maniac, but he slides off the road. And the car was stuck, so he had no way of getting it out alone. Um, And now there's a dead little girl in his trunk. So he turned his caution flashers on, grabs her out of the trunk, and walked into the woods. So he dumps her body. And he's just walking back up to his um, car with an empty sheet crumbled up in his hands to find two men standing there. He placed the sheet in the trunk and told them kind of what was going on, that he had slipped off the road, and they helped him lift the car out. And Miyazaki was able to speed off without saying a word. Like, these guys were like, he didn't even tell us thank you. And not to mention, he just dumped a little girl's body off the side of the highway. And was just he just returned so calmly, so chill, deranged. He is so far gone. It's... Unreal. 
Now, when police got word that yet another little girl was missing, they did not hesitate to connect Erica's disappearance to Mary and Masami's. Now, the next day, a person found some of Erica's clothing, and the police began combing the area looking for any more signs as to where she could be. Now, remember, they haven't found anything from the other two girls, so this is the first sign of the three missing girls that they found at all the last, what, four months? It wasn't long before police found little Erica's body. Her hands and feet were tied with nylon cord, um, but unfortunately there was no other evidence as to who could have done this to her. The two guys that helped Miyazaki with his car came forward, but wrongly identified the vehicle they saw that night. They thought they saw a Toyota Corolla, but Miyazaki drove a Nissan Langley. I don't know the diff- I don't know what a Nissan Langley is, but I know what a Corolla is, so I guess they look completely different i don't know or completely similar let's see okay yeah they look really similar i wouldn't have known the difference either um but they did accidentally you know mix up the cars police checked into six thousand corollas but they were looking for the wrong vehicle so they found nothing police were able to connect a few things whether the killer knew it or not though thankfully um, all three killer or all three girls were from the Satama Prefecture, which, according to Google, is similar to a state here in the U.S. So they all lived within the same state, I suppose. They all lived within 20 to 30 miles of each other, actually. And their family members were receiving repeat calls from seemingly no one. A week after the murder, just like the Konos, the Namba family received a postcard. And their postcard said, quote, Erica, cold, cough, throat, rest, death, end quote. And it was formed with kanji or kanji characters cut from magazines, pasted on a piece of paper, and then copied in an attempt to conceal their origin. So, um, those characters are just Japanese characters, um, a form of their language. And he cut it out from magazines and put it on a piece of paper, like, a, a you know, a typical serial killer from America would do. And he went a step further and copied this in an attempt to conceal where the original um, newspapers were coming from, which is, I, I suppose, smart. And even though now they had all this evidence and they knew they were looking for a serial killer, they still didn't really have any good suspects in mind. And that would leave Satomu a chance to commit his most heinous crime to date. Now, in between Erica's murder and the next young girl, Satoru was doing some evil shit. I mean, on February 6th, 1989, Shigo Kono, Mary's father, found a box on his doorstep that contained dirt, ashes, bone fragments, several children's teeth, pictures of children's clothing, and a note that read, quote, Mary Bones Cremated Investigate and prove, end quote. The teeth found among the ashes were immediately turned over to the legal division of the Tokyo Dental University for examination, where Dr. Kazo Suzuki concluded the teeth probably did not belong to Mary. But then whose freaking teeth are they is what I'm wondering. But after a police conference announced this finding, Suzuki changed his mind. So, in the beginning, he was like, no, I don't think these are Mary's. Police go out and say, hey, you know, the, the Konos received a box. This was what was in it. But we don't believe Mary's teeth were in there. So, hopefully, the little girl is still out there and still alive. Because if 
teeth and all these ashes are in the box, she isn't. Um, after they released this press conference saying it wasn't her, Suzuki changed. He just went back and was like, um, my examination was mistaken. Um, and the remains might actually be little Mary Kono's after all. Um, and then a police forensic expert gave his verdict on the 220 grams of bone fragments. Not only were they human, but they were Mary Kono's. Now, Miyazaki had only heard the first verdict, I guess you could say, um, where they identified the remains as not Mary. So, on February 11th, before he heard of the second ruling or whatever, you know, that it was Mary's, he took it upon himself to sit down and write a three-page confession. Now, part of this confession read as so, quote, I put the cardboard box with Mary's remains in it in front of her home. I did everything from the start of the Mary incident to the finish. I saw the police press conference where they said the remains were not Mary's. On camera, her mother said the report gave her new hope that Mary might still be alive. I knew then that I had to write this confession so Mary's mother would not continue to hope in vain. I say again, the remains are Mary's. End quote. And he also sent a Polaroid of Mary and signed it Yuko Amata, which is a pun on Now I'll Tell. So that... I don't even know how to explain it. Like, he isn't doing that for her family. I feel like he's more so doing it for him and the media's attention. Um, of course, no one that could do this to a little girl would then say, Oh, I was just so worried about what her mother, you know, hoping her little girl would come home. Like, no, you could care less about that because if you did care, you wouldn't have taken her baby to begin with. Now, on March 11th, 1989, over seven months after she was declared missing, Mary was finally laid to rest. Quote, her hands and feet didn't seem to be with the remains, end quote, which is what Shigo, her father, said at the funeral. Now, this next part just tore my heart open. He said, quote, when she gets to heaven, she won't be able to walk or eat. Please return the rest of her remains, end quote. Amazaki still wasn't done tormenting his first victim's family because when the Kono family returned home from her funeral, the day of her funeral, they received yet another note from the so-called Yoko Amada that said, quote, Before I knew it, the child's corpse had gone rigid. I wanted to cross her hands over her breast, but they wouldn't budge. Pretty soon, the body gets red spots all over it. Big red spots. Like the Hanom... I apologize. The Hanomaru... The Hanomaru flag... I'm so sorry because I know that I pronounced that wrong. Or like you'd covered her whole body with red hanko seals. After a while, the body is covered with stretch marks. It was so rigid before, but now it feels like it's full of water. And it smells. How it smells. Like nothing you've ever smelled in this whole wide world. End quote. Now, how 
Oh, the only reason I want to mention this is so y'all know how disturbing, disgusting, and unremorseful Satomo Miyazaki was about what he had done. Um, he's probably one of the most heinous serial killers, um, and I feel like he's just not talked about enough. It's just sickening to... I'd never heard of him before doing research on him, and it's... Like I said, quite disturbing, as I feel y'all have noticed. Now, on the first day of June, he saw some girls playing near an elementary school and convinced one of them to take their panties off. He was thankfully ran off as he began taking the pictures. I didn't get much more details on this, but something scared him off, thankfully, before he was able to snatch another girl. Unfortunately, though, only a few days later, on June 6th of 1989, five-year-old Ayeko Nomoto would be his fourth and final victim. Ayeko was spotted by Satomu while headed to the park, and he had convinced her to let him take photos of her and coaxed her into his car. Now, she noticed his deformed hands and was scared, and that angered him, and he began to strangle her. He later said, quote, she kicked and kicked, but went limp in four or five minutes, end quote. And to ensure she was dead, he taped her mouth and tied her hands with a vinyl rope, then wrapped her body with a sheet and put it in the trunk. On his way home, he stopped at a video shop to rent a camera and then waited outside his house for two whole hours before bringing little Diego's body inside. He stripped her clothes off wiped her body with a towel, laid it on a table, spread her legs, and taped her vagina apart. Completely horrific. He he proceeded to take pictures and videos while he masturbated over her dead body. Now, once Satomo was finished, he bound her hands and feet back up, covered her again with the sheet, and kept her body in his apartment for two days. Of course, as any dead body would, she began to smell and he had to get rid of her. So he chopped her head, hands, and feet off, ate some of her flesh, drank some of the blood from her hands, and then threw her torso near a toilet in a cemetery. And the rest of her, including her skull, was thrown in the hills near his house. After a couple of weeks, he got nervous that police would find the remains, and being that they were so close to his home, they would connect him to the murder, so he gathered what he could find and hid them in his closet. Roughly a week after that, police found Ayako's mutilated torso in the woods, and unfortunately, that was all they had of her at that time. Despite Satomo's butchering of her body, police still were able to identify her by her blood type and chest size, which was allegedly recorded by her mother when she was reported missing. Now, I didn't realize that, one, you just knew your child's chest size. Like, I'm sorry, but does that make me a bad mom? Because I couldn't tell you what Nug's chest size was or even, like, remotely close. And I don't even remember the circumference of her heads, or of her head, so kudos to you. Uh, And two, I didn't know that was relevant information the police knew to get in that time, but 
round of applause for them because it helped them identify her quickly without fingerprints or being able to look at her face since her torso was the only thing they had. Now, the stomach contents also matched Ayako's last meal. And thankfully, this would be the last little girl that was murdered by this monster. Now, July 23rd, 1989, Miyazaki spotted two girls playing together without any adults in sight. So, he pulled up next to the pair and was able to separate the younger one away. The older one of the two ran home to tell her father that a man had taken her younger sister, of course. Um, and the dad was like, um, no thank you, and sprinted into action quickly. He found his young daughter nude laying on the ground with Maizaki snapping pictures of his daughter. So the father grabbed Maizaki, knocked him down, but somehow this little worm was able to squirm away from him and run off. Fortunately, the dingling returned to his vehicle where police were waiting on him and were finally able to arrest the Otaku murderer. Although I'm not sure they knew it right away. He was charged with forcing a minor to commit indecent acts, but after a search of his vehicle and house, it was about to turn into a lot worse of charges. Now, keep in mind, he's completely emotionless throughout this entire ordeal. Like, you'd think you just got arrested um, because they caught you, like, taking pictures of a new child. That's pretty serious charges. You'd think he'd be stressed, nervous. But nothing. He's just stone cold, like just staring into space. Back at Miyazaki's apartment, the police found a ton of disturbing things. Things. <clears throat> they found close to six thousand videotapes, some including random anime videos, anime porn, and then some more serious tapes, such as those including his victims and their mutilation. So, like four, five, six-year-old little girls. He's got video of them. So disgusting. Now, they also found clothing from his victims, and the most horrific find of all was the hands and feet of his victims that he had hidden. Now, this is something I wanted to quickly mention, because if you remember the first victim, Mary Kono's father, um, Shigo, had pled with his daughter's killer to return her hands and feet so she could walk and eat in heaven. Thankfully, this wish was able to be granted, and it's probably... The only even slightly happy, happy thing that even comes out of this. Now, Satomo ended up confessing, and once he did, everything seemed to be exposed in the media. So, we'll get into his confession in a minute. But let's discuss the moral panic that happened in Japan during that time. Now, if you remember, you know... um. Now, I keep mentioning the Taco murderer as one of his nicknames, and once the media caught wind of the case, every paper was covering it, of course. And there was widespread panic of the otaku culture, which reminded me so much of the satanic panic in the United States during the 80s and 90s. Now, in one source I read, I wanted to share a quote from Dr. Oda. Quote, If such videos were not so widely available, crimes like this might not have happened. People with this kind of disposition, videos can help put plans in their head, end quote. Which, yes, I could agree that people that already are so screwed up could get plans or inspiration from different things like this. But we don't and we can't really blame the source or the media. Um, we shouldn't blame creators of any kind if someone twists their craft into something sinister. 
especially because I'm pretty sure 98% of these creators, you know, musicians, artists, etc., writers, um, they never have the intent to birth a serial killer out of their work. So we never need to create another panic like this. And I thought it was interesting that it happened um, around the same time in Japan with anime, not satanic panic, but just the otaku panic, I, I guess is what they might've called it. Now back to Satomu, 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 excuse me, good grief. <laughs> Guys, I'm so ready to be done with this case so I can quit stumbling over my words. <laughs> Now, originally, he was re-arrested for the kidnap and murder of Ayako Namoto, and then a few days afterwards, on August 15, 1999, he confessed to killing Mary Kono and Erika Namba. Police started questioning him about his involvement in Marasama Yoshizawa's kidnapping as well, and Maizaki ended up confessing to her murder, as, confessing to her murder too. After his confession, people had a lot to say. Now, the LA Times reported this in September of 1989. Quote, Accustomed to an antiseptic and relatively crime-free society, the Japanese are choking on their breakfast this summer. Banner newspaper headlines are screaming at them about the details in a gruesome case of serial murder. What a way to open your article, Carl. <laughs> Not only was Japan and the entire world choking on their breakfasts, but his family was too. Maezaki's parents disowned him, and his father refused to pay for his legal fees, as his father said that it would be an insult to the victim's family. Which, round of applause for Maezaki's dad, because unfortunately, as we know in some of these cases, the murderer's families just kind of cover up for them. Um, but his father wouldn't even pay for his legal fees, so... Since he didn't have any money to pay for his defense, the public defender's office looked for a long time before finding two lawyers, Junji Suzuki and Kiji Iwakura, who were willing to take the case. Now, Suzuki only agreed because he vehemently opposed the death penalty, which I know there are people out there that will never see a reason for the death penalty, and I respect that. But if there was a case for one, this would be at the top of my list to just hand out the death penalty like candy, you know? But, besides the point. His trial began in March of 1990 and lasted a really freaking long time. Until 1997. So, seven whole years. And apparently, Japan does not have the right to a speedy trial, so be thankful for the amendments, guys. Allegedly, Maezaki's trial was attended by roughly 1,500 people, even though only 50 were allowed inside the courtroom. Maezaki was described as eerily calm and indifferent to what was happening to him, and in some reports was said to even be sleeping through some of his trial. Also, during the trial, Maezaki blamed an alter ego he seemed to have just made up named the Rat Man. In some sources, it said that Maezaki claimed the rat man forced him to kill and promised to bring his grandfather back to life. He also stretched out the rat man during his trial and make sure to draw a penis. Oh, he would also sketch out the rat man during his trial and make sure he drew a penis on him, which is so strange, in my opinion. But 
Okay, I guess. Um, he also justified his killing say they, saying they were acts of benevolence. He never spoke a word of apology to any victim, which is not shocking under any circumstance to me. And not only did he not display any remorse, but he was said to have felt proud of himself and what he had done. Maizaki even had time to ask for his car and his anime to be returned. Like, sir... I don't think you're going to be needing a car from where you're going, but carry on. Now, as far as his defense went, their whole job was to try and convince the court that Maizaki was insane, so he could not receive the death penalty. As we all know, if the sanity defense is what you're going to try and play, then you will have to be interviewed by more than just one psychiatrist. And that was the case for Satomu as well. And another thing to note in Japan is Japanese law did not allow someone of unsound mind to be punished, which is kind of bizarre to me. People that were considered feeble-minded were just given reduced sentences. So that is definitely not something we would need for Satomu here, considering he's a child murderer and predator. Maizaki was examined by three teams of psychologists. The court first had a team of six psychology professors from Keio University to examine Maizaki. They filed the report and the results were Maizaki was fully capable of taking responsibility for his actions. Now, attorney Suzuku disagreed with that and made the statement, quote, The more we see of him, the more we think he lives in a different world. We felt the report did not establish Miyazaki's mental capabilities beyond reasonable doubt, so we asked for a second evaluation. Fortunately, the judge agreed. It is very unusual for a team to evaluate a defendant. Usually, a single psychologist is used, end quote. So, to me in that statement, there's a couple of things. Suzuki was one like, mm, I think it's very weird that he was you know, interviewed by six people, six psychologists. We only need one. Maybe that's why we got a weird, you know, a weird outcome to that examination. But also, we just think he lives in a different world, man. Like, no shit he lives in a different world, brother. But not that different. Not different enough for him to be waltzing around on the streets freely. Now, it didn't elaborate to the second evaluation, but the last team of professionals that evaluated Maizaki were three Tokyo University professors. And at the time, they would be the defense team's last appeal. The prosecution could appeal for another evaluation if it disagreed with the upcoming report, but the defense couldn't. I am assuming because they exceeded their appeal limit. At the end of the evals, though, two of the teams diagnosed him as feeble-minded and the other diagnosed him as schizophrenic. One team said that he had multiple personality disorder as well. Ultimately, though, Satomu Maizaki was deemed sane and after a seven-year trial was sentenced to the death penalty on April 17, 1997. Maizaki stayed on death row reading comic books and watching anime and, of course, appealing his sentence, but was denied. The standard method of death penalty in Japan is hanging, and Maizaki had voiced his fear of being hanged multiple times, and actually asked for lethal injection instead. In 2006, the Supreme Court justice held upheld the death penalty for Maizaki's sentence, thankfully, and on June 17, 2008, 
Satomu Maizaki was hung and is probably burning in hell as we speak. Now, during his trial, his father was so embarrassed about what his son had done, he had also committed suicide, which is a tragic thing to come out of this. Um, but thankfully, Maizaki is no longer here, no longer um, able to hurt children, and I just feel so horrible about those baby girls and their families. But, guys, we made it through a really rough episode. We made it through a really rough serial killer. <laughs> um, so, maybe I won't go with something super heavy next week. Um, but, if you like listening to Illnation, make sure you keep listening, keep reviewing, keep sharing, liking, all of those good things. It keeps us going. And we just love you all. Make sure you're following the Instagram at Ill Natured Pod. You're a part of the Facebook group, Ill Natured Podcast. You are following the TikTok at Ill Natured Pod. And if you have any case suggestions, any stories, critiques, concerns, whatever, business inquiries, you can email us at illnaturedpod at yahoo.com. I hope you guys will stick around for all of the crazy to come um and i will catch you guys on the flip side peace